you ever feel like you're walking against the flow? Like you live in a foreign country and your life doesn't make sense to the people around you? That's what it means to be in exile. It's someone who's not comfortable where they are, who's longing for a better country, but can't go home yet. The Lord Jesus talked about the broad road to destruction. He said many are going down that smooth, easy path. Only a few find the narrow gate to the straight path of life. We'll be going through the book of 1 Peter over the next few months. In the first verse of his letter, Peter calls Christians elect exiles. See, every believer is an exile, a foreigner in this world, on their way to the new heaven and the new earth that Jesus is making for us. But we're to take comfort in the fact that we're elect. God has chosen us. If you believe in Jesus, it's because he's given you his grace to repent and come to him in faith. So be encouraged, church. You're not supposed to feel at home here. You're an elect exile, following in the footsteps of our Lord, the suffering servant. I hope you'll come and walk that narrow path with us. We had fun making that. Uh, it was the result of a conversation that I had with Douglas about the, the Brazilian connotation of these two words. So uh, we're going to be going through 1 Peter, and I've chosen Elect Exiles as the title of that series because it's what comes right out of the text, both in NIV and in ESV. But he said, Thomas, elections are bad things in Brazil, and exiles are also bad people because they all get exiled. So we, we had this great back and forth about what it means theologically, and I thought, well, let's do something fun with the meaning of those words. And that's what produced that fun video. And Violet was very brave to stand in the middle of the road. <laughs> we had to film it two or three times, and she stood right there behind that little cone, and the motorcycle's going around her. Thank you, Lord. Well, it's nice to be back. Uh, I, I did want to say a quick word about how well we've been received at PACA. Do you know about the Pan American Christian Academy? I assume that everybody at Calvary knows about PACA, but it's just a wonderful place. It's doing battle for some of the, the most precious people in the world, right? Our children. And it's just been a wonderful place for us to spend this week, and we're looking forward to being there this semester. Thank you to those who give your lives to that ministry. And may God encourage you in the battle. It is a battle. The devil wants to devour our children. And so you've put yourself in that gap, and I pray that it will be fruitful. So let's look at 1 Peter. Please open your Bible. Please uh, turn on your cell phone. Uh, have a place to take notes. Don't let these seeds fall uh, on fallow ground in your heart. But before we begin, I want to talk about how the Bible does its work. So we're about to embark on a study verse by verse through a book of the Bible. This is not a book. It's a library. 66 books written by over 40 writers, but only one author. Over a period of 1,500 years, that tells the same story. Truly a miracle. God has written it. God has guarded it, and he's given it to us. It does work on certain people who make certain decisions. 
Not on everybody. It's living and active, but it's not really even the Word of God when it's in between these two covers. It has to get out. See, the Pharisees thought that they had it when they memorized the first five books of the Old Testament. But they were the ones that made Jesus the maddest. He said to them, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me and have life. My friends, if you come to Calvary on Sunday morning thinking that knowledge of the Bible will make you different or save you in some way, you might be fooling yourself like the Pharisees did because they had all the knowledge up here, but it didn't change a thing about them. They refused to come to Jesus. That's why we have worship. That's when you come to Jesus. That's why we have prayer. That's when you come to the throne of His grace. Coming to Him in your hearts is what truly transforms you. Jesus also said, John 17, sanctify them, Father, by the truth. Your word is truth. This has a sanctifying power if it's in the hands of the Father. He's the one that sanctifies us. He uses the Bible to do that. Psalm 1 tells us that the man who's blessed in every way meditates on his law day and night. Don't think that coming to church on Sunday morning is all you need of the Bible. It's not. You'll starve. Your faith will dry up. You need day and night meditation. Not just reading, memorizing, meditating. Day and night. Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit and is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. See, we need to let the Bible come into us and decide who am I and who is Jesus in me. What do I want and what does God want in me? That's soul and spirit. Soul is my personality, my mind, will, and emotions. Spirit is my life of, of God in my body. The Holy Spirit living in the body of the believer, not the unbeliever, who wants as well to do God's will. A couple more. Matthew 7, 24, whoever hears my words and does them is like a man who built his house on a rock. Remember that story? Who's the man who builds his house on the rock? The one who does it. The wise man does it. That's the difference. One comes to church and goes to lunch and forgets. Another comes to church and says, wow, Lord, I'm not going to watch any more of those stupid YouTube videos and changes what he does. Goes home and does it because the spirit convicted her or him and he, she obeys. The house gets built on the rock. James 1, 23 and 24, basically the same message. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word, he or she is like a man or woman who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. It's like looking in the mirror when you wake up on Sunday morning and seeing your hair standing up, not me, you, And coming to church with your hair standing up because you didn't do anything about the conviction of the word in your life. You didn't change what you perceived from the word was off base, was out of line. Be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. And then we'll end with 1 Peter, which is where we're going to uh, journey. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. This is 1 Peter 1, 23 to 25. Through the living and abiding Word of God. Living and abiding. Living and abiding. Staying in you. You staying in it. 
For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. What a wonder to see our young people explaining the good news to people who don't know it. Can you explain the gospel to somebody? Parents, here's a job for you at lunch. Ask everybody around the table to explain the gospel. Do a quick review of Rick's lesson on that last semester. You remember four parts? God, sin, Jesus. What's the last one? Response. We have a response to make. God, sin, Jesus, response. You can start at any one of those four. Got to have all four. All right. So, study God's word for five things. I know, this isn't even the sermon yet. (laughs) Write them down, because we're going to go through them quick. Number one, to know God's story. We've got to get out of some of our favorite books. You know, some people get stuck in Philippians and Ephesians and Revelation, maybe the Gospels. You go around and around and around because that's the delicious part, right? That's like eating dessert. You need to go from cover to cover to know that history is his story. Anybody here seven years old? Who's seven? Is there a seven-year-old in the house? Hey, there's one back there, seven years old. So when I learned to read, I was seven years old, first grade, my dad said, the main reason you know how to read is to read this. So my rule in our house from now on is no Bible, no breakfast. If you come to the breakfast table without reading a chapter of the Bible by yourself on your bed in your room, then you'll just go back and read it before you have breakfast. And I tested that rule a couple of times because I came without doing it. I read through the New Testament when I was seven. Between seven and eight, I read through the New Testament. And between eight and nine, I did it again. Nine and 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. When I got to high school, my dad said, okay, that's a little bit too little for a high schooler. Now you're going to read the whole book in a year. I said, do I have to? Yes, you have to. He forced me to read the Bible four times in high school. And I learned to love it. Today, I can't have breakfast without hearing my dad say, did you read your Bible yet? And that's such a blessing because you learn to find delicious nuggets of honey in this thing. And it feeds your soul. It feeds your faith. Know his story and know how your story fits into his story. That's only the first of five. Believe God's promises. Believe God's promises. Faith comes from hearing. See, we quickly believe our eyes. We believe our gut. We believe our feelings. If you read the word over and over, through and back through again, you begin to to know his promises. You believe that even though you haven't seen it yet, he will be true to his word. Trust God's character. Over and over in the word, God says, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. I am Jehovah Jireh. I am your provider. I am your banner. I am the things I have done in the history of my people. And so we learn to see that God is not just a God of peace and tranquility. Moses called him a mighty warrior. Trust his character. Know his character. Believe his promises, but then believe in God's goodness and sovereignty and knowledge of everything. Trust his character through reading the word. But then we must come back to that verse in John 5 that says, come to me. The reason you study the Word is to know its author, to know God. This is eternal life, that they might know you 
and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You can memorize the Bible and go to hell if you don't know Jesus. He will tell you how. It's the map. But like GPS, you know, you don't have to follow that little blue line, right? you got to follow it. you got to do what it says. you got to listen. Not that you're saved by works, saved by grace, but it's for the purpose of listening to his voice and knowing him. And then number five, obey his commands. Not by works, but for works. Add Ephesians 2.10 to your memory verse list. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 has the whole thing. And we're going to talk about that again. We're sanctified by the spree- and for the sprinkling of his blood. And we'll look at that. How does the Bible do its work? This is how. I saw a short video that a friend sent me this week by a man named Richard Griffin. I didn't know who he was, but apparently for years he was the personal protector of the queen, of Queen Elizabeth. So even when she went on vacation, Richard Griffin was walking beside her as she walked through the downs or wherever she was, she was going. He was her personal protector. He tells a story of one day they're walking out in the fields and they run across two American hikers. And the hikers introduce themselves and say, hey, how are you? Do you, do you live around here? And the queen says, yeah, I have a house right over here, right over the, the hill. And they say, well, have you ever seen the queen? I hear, I hear she lives around here too. And she said, no, I don't see her much, but Dick here, he sees her every day. And they looked at him and said, what's that like? And he said, well, she can be ornery sometimes, but I enjoy it most of the time. They said, could we take a picture with you? And they handed their camera to Queen Elizabeth, who (laughs) took a picture of them with this guy that sees the queen every day. (laughs) See, I'm Richard Griffin. You won't even remember his name. The king is here. Don't come to know Thomas or some other person. Come to know the king. That's why we're here. We're here to meet the king. We're here to hear his voice. We're here to dedicate ourselves more to his service. And I hope you recognize him better than those two gringos recognized Queen Elizabeth. I took this picture three weeks ago in the city of Rome. I was with my beloved, and we were touring Rome. That is where people think Paul and Peter were put in prison. It was a water source in hundreds of years B.C., and they built this dungeon around it, and then they would throw political prisoners in there while they waited to be tried and executed. Uh, It's tradition, so who knows what the historic... But it's the only place that they think that Peter could have written, 1 Peter... From this stone, dank, damp, dark. I mean, that was with a flash. It was really dark in there. Uh, That's not a window, by the way. It's a plaque on the wall. Uh, And and we sat there and thought, wow, no wonder Peter wrote about suffering. He's sitting in this place waiting to be crucified upside down, and he's writing a letter to his friends spread across Asia Minor. So we're going to have three points. Identification, sanctification, Multiplication. You can write those in your notes. I hope you're taking notes because this is uh, kind of long and complicated and you might forget. By the way, I will send you the outline tomorrow, those of you who are members of Calvary and get the distribution list. If you're not a member of Calvary, talk to me. We can work that out. <clears throat> but we're going through just the first three verses of 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning. Identification. 
Peter identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a little shocking because he doesn't say the first pope. He doesn't say the rock. He doesn't say anything except the facts. He doesn't avoid it. He doesn't grovel. He says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. And I looked up a little bit more about what apostle means because that word is used a lot today with a lot of sort of iffy uh, connections to the Bible. So they say that apostle was used in the Roman context and even before, uh, before that to mean uh, admiral, the admiral of a ship that was exploring for new areas for Rome to dominate. He would go to a new land and set the flag of the Caesar and say, this now belongs to Rome. The admiral was called an apostle. It was used as the word for a passport, proof of citizenship in the empire of Rome that allowed you to travel. It was used uh, for the word ambassador. An ambassador of Rome was called an apostle. And so it wasn't original with the church. They have borrowed it to mean basically three things. Authority, right? This has been authorized by the king. Mobility. An apostle is not to be building an empire around themselves like some people today that we see calling themselves apostles. I'm going to build a giant castle and I'm going to be the, the apostle. It's mobility. It's someone who's going out and conquering new land for the king. And finally, a message, communication. It's to, to give the edict of the king, to communicate the message of the king. And that's what Peter's saying. I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. How do you introduce yourself? When someone says, who are you? Depends on the context, right? You know how the great preacher Charles Spurgeon introduced himself? A great sinner with a great savior. I love that. I'm a great sinner and I have a great savior. And he's made me, he's seated me with him on the throne. So I'm not groveling, but I'm glorifying him for anything that I'm able to do. Let's identify ourselves with Christ just like Jesus did. Jesus, Peter. Peter did. So he identifies who he's writing to. To whom is he writing? What does he say? He says, elect exiles in these five places. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. There's a map of them. I'm, I'm sure you can't see that very well, but if you look at the kind of the middle between the sea on the top and the sea in the middle, it's all that area of uh, Asia Minor. And he scattered them around in a way that says it's to all believers scattered around the known world in Asia. I'm writing to all of you. Remember back in Acts chapter 2 when he was preaching? Uh, some people were there for the, for the Passover or for uh, Pentecost, and they said, and how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and, Arabian, and Arabians. So those are the people that Peter met when he gave that first sermon. And the revival came at Pentecost. And he knew them pretty well, probably, because they became part of the church in Jerusalem. Then the persecution came, and in ESV, it says, the elect exiles of the dispersion, with capital D. So the, the, the translators of the ESV believe that they're talking, he's talking about these very people 
who were then spread far and wide with the gospel into the known world of Asia. I would like to suggest that this applies to all of us who are strangers in the world, walking against the flow of traffic, of the broad road to destruction, and going towards the new heaven and the new earth. He's writing to elect exiles everywhere. What does this mean? Let's talk just a little bit about it, uh, about an exile and an elect exile. An exile is a displaced person. They say today there are 100 million people who cannot go home for whatever reason, political uh, danger, war. 100 million people are displaced in the world. It's a remnant. The exiles are a remnant. Some, some people have Jeremiah 29, 11 as their favorite verse. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for good and not for evil. That was written in Jerusalem to the, to the exiles in Babylon. Jeremiah is speaking to the exiles that Nebuchadnezzar has taken to Babylon and saying, don't worry, you're in exile. Someday I will bring you back. Cause the city that you're exiled in to grow, to be blessed, build houses, plant crops. I have good plans for you. That's why we can take that for ourselves, because we are now the modern exiles of the kingdom of God. An exile is an enemy of the state. This is what Douglas and I talked about this week, about the theological ramifications of being an exile. But in a sense, we are enemies of the world system. The Bible says if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. If you love the world, do not love the world, says 1 John, or anything in the world. So we, in a sense, are enemies of the state of the prince of this world, who's the prince of darkness, taking as many as will follow him to eternal damnation. I hope you've escaped that. I hope you've found conviction of your sin and jumped out of the sinking ship of this world and jumped into Christ, who is our salvation. Uh, and then finally, it's the persecuted ones, those who are going against the flow, those that others make fun of, because they don't say yes or laugh at every joke they hear or go along with the world system. But, but he doesn't just say exile. And this is what's so wonderful. He says elect exiles. God has chosen us to be exiles. God has chosen us as his children to follow in the steps of the suffering servant, to take our cross on our shoulder and follow Jesus' steps in the suffering way of waiting for the consummation of our salvation. We're chosen, we're predestined. That's a biblical word, it's written. God knew you before he formed the world. Your name, if you are a believer, your name was written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. We don't understand how that can be. I love a, a line from The Silver Chair. Okay, how many have, written, have read The Silver Chair? Oh my. Lord help us. So, Chronicles of Narnia did not start as a movie. The Chronicles of Narnia are theological books written in, the, 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 in children's literature because C.S. Lewis believed that children are the first ones into the kingdom of God and everyone needs to be a like a child to get in. Read the Chronicles of Narnia. I have six children. I've read them out loud to all six. Because I believe that you know Jesus in the Chronicles of Narnia right after the Bible. And the silver chair is one of my favorites, and it starts with these two kids at school, and there's bullies chasing them. 
something everybody understands. Everybody feels that fear of bullies coming and you got to run and you hide under the bushes and they see you and they're coming and they're running and they get to the wall of the school and there's a door that's always locked in the wall. And Eustace, one of the kids, has been to Narnia, knows Aslan, the Christ figure, and he just blurts out, Aslan, help us! And every time I read that, I would get tears in my eyes and my kids would be like, what are you, what, why are you crying, Dad? This is exciting. And it's because it's such a beautiful picture of prayer and anguish, not understanding. Aslan's never been to this world. How could he pray to Aslan at school? And they try the door and it opens. And they go through the door, and the other side of the wall, suddenly it's Narnia. And there's Aslan. And he looks at those kids, and he's basically, the story's kind of long, but he says, I called you here because I have a mission for you to complete. And Eustace says, I called you. And Aslan says, you would never have called me unless I had been calling to you. That's predestination. The reason you are here this morning is because the Holy Spirit drew, drew you. The reason you opened your heart to Jesus, if, it, if in fact you've done that, is because the Holy Spirit was knocking at the door of your heart, and you heard the knock, and you opened the door, and He came in. Yes, you are free to choose, but He chose you first. We are elect, exiles, marching to the new heaven and the new earth. The last part of identification is who is God. And oh, how wonderful this is. That's why I spent this whole message on first, the first three verses. Father, Spirit, and Son. Look at 1 Peter 1, 2. According to the knowledge of God the Father, that's election, in the sanctific sanctification of God the, Spirit, the Holy Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, God the Son. In the election of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit for the purpose of obeying the Son, of obeying Jesus. God knew, the Spirit drew, and now it's our job to obey Jesus in the power that He's given us in His Holy Spirit. God is three in one. As I've read through the Scripture, I've asked the Lord to show me these verses. Where is the Trinity? The word Trinity is never used. We believe that God is three in one. He is not Allah. He is not Allah. We had a pastor who was a Syrian convert from Islam one time in the U.S. And he said, the reason Jehovah cannot be Allah is because Jehovah is love. And if he was alone, he would be lonely because he is love. But as a trinity, he has never been needy. He has never lacked an object for his love in the divine trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, always completely satisfied and rejoicing in himself. So I'd like to just run through a few of these verses. Look at the, look at the trinity right here in the Great Commission, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Not three baptisms, one baptism, one God in three persons. 1 Corinthians 12, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There's the Lord Jesus. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. There's the Trinity. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father, both Gentiles and Jews, through Jesus, in the Spirit, to the Father. There's Father, 
Son, and Holy Spirit. He's the beginning of the road, he's the end of the road, and he's the road. It's all about him. One body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. So there's the one spirit, the one Lord, and the one God and Father of all. We won't take time to read uh, Revelations 1, but it's in there too. And I challenge you to mark those verses. Find, the, find God in the book. Find God's reflection, his shadow going through as you read through the scripture. Second point is sanctification. In the sanctification of the Spirit. So we're elect exiles according to God's foreknowledge and election in the sanctification of the Spirit. This is not simply by working harder to be good, right? You can come to church thinking, okay, this week I'm going to get better. I'm going to work hard. And yeah, there's some work involved, but it's kind of and and anti or uh, counterintuitive work. Your work is to be more in the Spirit so that the Spirit can sanctify you more. Not to try harder to please the Spirit who happens to be way up in heaven watching to see if you mess up. In the Holy Spirit we are sanctified. Who is the Spirit? In the Scripture, the Spirit is fire. The Spirit is water. The living water coming up out of your inner being. So if you think of a cup that has a, a pipe attached to the bottom and it just keeps bubbling up, think about how that just keeps washing out all of the impurities, keeps sanctifying, keeps giving you new desires to do good, not to do bad. I hope you see that growing in your life with Christ. He's the wind, the breath of God. And that reminded me this week of a great old song by Keith Green. Remember? Rushing wind blow through this temple, blowing out the dust within Come and breathe your breath upon me. I've been born again. Holy Spirit, I surrender. Take me where you want to go. Plant me by your living water. Plant me deep so I can grow. We are sanctified by the indwelling presence of God in the Spirit. Learn to do what He likes and you will live at peace. In the Spirit, for obedience to the Son. Now, I realized a little while ago, it hadn't been long, it took me a long time to realize this, that I cannot be holy without being loving. I know that might seem really simple to you, but I kind of thought that being holy was just being clean. Me and my life and thoughts and body before God, see God, I'm clean now, I'm not sinning. Hold on to me so I don't sin anymore. And if I could just stay away from all those people that make me angry, I would stay holy. That's why people go out into the desert and become monks. Because they want to just be holy. You know, don't, don't look at anybody that annoys me. You can't be holy without being loving. Because you're made holy for obedience to Jesus Christ. If you're being disobedient, you're sinning. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And my commandment is this, love one another as I have loved you. That's holiness. That's the fruit of holiness. As we become more holy, we want to love those annoying people, right? God gives us his desire, his grace, his peace between us so that we can increase in love. 
in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it finally it says, and sprinkling with his blood. Now we have to remember that Peter is a Jew. In fact, in, in Acts 10, he says, I've never disobeyed the law. I've never eaten anything unclean. He was a good Jew. He was raised as a good Jew. He knew what sprinkling with blood was because the priests in the temple took hyssop or another branch of something and they would dip it in a jar or something full of blood, fresh red blood, and they would sprinkle the altar. They would sprinkle the priests. In Ezra, they sprinkle the whole country. Imagine going home to lunch and you got red spots all over your forehead because the pastor sprinkled you. What does that mean for us? As I meditated on that this week, I thought, this is not salvation. This is cleansing from daily sin. We're going to have communion in a few minutes. This is, you are serving, you are being obedient to Christ. God has elect, God chosen you. You've been sanctified by the Spirit. You are serving God. You are loving through Christ. You're learning to walk with Him and obeying Christ, but you do it with wrong motives. I'm so proud that I'm a missionary to street kids. Oh, Lord, have mercy. Humble me. Sprinkle me with your blood and make me more sanctified. So it's for obedience to Jesus, but for sprinkling with his blood as we obey so that our obedience is more and more pleasing to him. Sanctification means separated for God's holy purpose. He's ordained our life and our way. The way, the way to get to him. And then finally, multiplication. Peter says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. And then if you turn over to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, he says the same thing, but he adds sort of a key. He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is God's goodness deposited in us that we don't deserve, that we then share with others. And they share with others. And as it goes out, it's multiplied from person to person to person. Goodness, giving, grace, releasing, blessing. Because we have received blessing, then it's multiplied. And that creates the bond of peace between us and the Holy Spirit. And it's not just added, he says, multiplied to you. Grace and peace multiplied in the knowledge of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know how many of you Remember uh, Roy Gordon. You remember Roy Gordon? Raise your hand if you remember Brother Roy Gordon. He was a, uh, an engineer from Scotland. Blessed brother, Presbyterian. Talked with a beautiful Scottish brogue. And I once asked him, so Roy, how do you think about free will and election? We choose, but God chose first. Can those two be compatible? And I wish I could tell you what he said in his accent, but I can't. But I'm going to tell you the story. And you've probably heard it before, but it bears repeating. And you kids should listen to this too. He says, I think of my life as a hallway with doors on the side. And as I go through time, I have opportunities. And I see these doors, and some I pass by, and some I open. And he says, I get to a door, and I look above it, and there's a title over the door. It says, Whosoever will may come. And as I look at that, I think, well, I'd like to find out what's in there. I want to go in there. And you go in, you open the door, and you go in, and you find a banquet table set for a wedding. All these fancy place settings and flowers. And you look at the table, and you see your name in front of a plate. 
And you think, somebody knew I was coming. And you turn around to see which door you came in, and over the same door on the inside, it says chosen from before the foundation of the world. It's the same door. You are here this morning for a purpose. God knew you would come. He drew you to his presence. He has chosen you to believe in him, to repent, or I hope not for another purpose, but he has a purpose. Have you opened that door? Have you believed that? Have you submitted your life to him, given him your old heart and received his new heart? You can do that today. The door is open. We've been chosen to be exiles in the world. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Would you pray with me as we finish? We're going to take communion now. And I'm afraid some of you may never have heard that knocking hand on your door. But if you would just get really quiet, you would know that for some time now, God has been calling you and knocking on your door and saying, I paid the debt. You don't have to pay it. I know your sin. Confess it. Repent. It's killing you. Give up. Surrender. Take down your little flag and put up my flag. Maybe you could just do that right now and say, yes, Lord Jesus, you're king. You're my king. I want you to come in and live in my heart. Take away my heart of stone. Give me a heart of flesh. I want to be alive in you. Maybe that's why you came this morning, to hear that. Right there where you're sitting, you can say, Lord, I repent of being my own God. I want you to be my king. Come into my life. Take my filthy rags away. Wash me clean with your blood and fill me with your spirit. Something that only you can do. You're between you and God. At any age, man or woman, boy or girl, anybody can do that. Father, thank you that you are Son, Spirit, and Father. That you are the call, you are the way, and you are the home that we are going to. We rest in you. Sprinkle us with your blood again as we confess our sins this morning. Prepare us to share in the Lord's Supper. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 11. 23 to 31, very familiar, but I'm going to read all the way through it just so that you can hear what the Word of God says about what we're about to do with the Lord's Supper. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That's why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. 
But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Let me just remind you that Judas was there when Jesus did that. And he did fall asleep, didn't he? He went out and killed himself afterwards. So this process doesn't save you. It's a celebration of what Jesus has done to save us. It's by him.